Turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, and that to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Rather, verse 37. 37. Hear God's Word. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have read your word and we have sung your praises. And now as we enter into the sacred exposition of your word, we need more than anyone else. We need your Holy Spirit. Apart from your spirit, all this activity is meaningless. And so give us your spirit and that to communicate spiritual truths into our human hearts. Bring us, we ask, under holy submission so that as we hear your word, we would be driven to holy obedience, to the obedience of Christ, under the Lordship of Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. For us Christians, one of the questions we will always ask this side of heaven is this, how can I be more like Jesus? that we will be in constant pursuit as those born in the image of the man of dust to bear the image of the man of heaven, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. How can we be more conformed into his likeness? Here on the Sermon on the Mount, it's as if the disciples had asked that very question to the Lord Jesus prior to his sermon. It's because everything that Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 6 is really a portrait of himself. And all that he is calling them to be, he is himself. And all that he is commanding them to do, he himself has done. You might say that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on the imitation of Christ. And for us in hearing his words, we, we find ourselves gazing upon his face that we might be like Him in all of His beatitudes, His poverty of spirit, His hunger and thirst for righteousness, His mourning of sin, not, not of His own, of course, but ours, His long-suffering. And as we saw last week, His love for His enemies. There He told us that our love was to be like His own towards sinners, unselfish and unfailing, self-sacrificing and self-denying, more than our personal reputation and our personal possessions that we would consider the eternal well-being of others. 
Even those who seek to hurt us and demean us and persecute us. I want you to notice here in Luke chapter 6, notice that in his exposition on love, Jesus, he posed the question, what benefit or what credit is that to you? Notice he said that a total of three times. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Jesus speaks repeatedly of the benefit to say that there really isn't any. But there is a benefit in loving your enemy. Look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Jesus tells tells us that in loving our enemies, there is a benefit. There is a reward. Well, what is that reward? Notice what he says. You will be sons of the Most High. You will be sons of the Most High. As good theologians, we know that loving our enemies won't make us sons. No. We know that sonship is is not won by human merit. And so it's not that we will be made sons. But the reward is this. It's knowing that we are sons. You see, this love proves that we are sons and daughters. That's the reward. That's the benefit in knowing whose we are. We are truly of our Father. And that He is transforming us into the image of His beloved Son, Jesus. Now, in our passage this afternoon, Jesus, He does not depart from His message on love, but rather He continues to teach us as to how this love is made manifest to those who belong to His kingdom. Back in verses 27 through 36, He has told us that we are to love our enemies. Now, beginning in verse 37, He tells us that we are to love without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. You know, many of us know the illustration about pointing out specks in the eyes of others while a log is wedged into our own, and we'll get there. But he starts talking about this love, this love that is without hypocrisy by first, notice, bringing up the subject matter of judgment. Of judgment. Notice, Jesus begins by talking about judging others. Well, that's the first question we're going to have to answer here is, What does he mean? And sometimes the best way to begin is with what he doesn't mean. To clarify what he does mean. And so this is really the first point of our outline. We need to know what Jesus is not saying. This verse here, in verse 37, might be among one of the most misunderstood teachings in all of the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting is that the, uh, the unbelieving world thinks that they know what Jesus means. Some believing as well. You often hear this verse cited when, for example, someone makes a comment on an action or a situation and condemns it as evil. You can't judge. Thou shall not judge, someone else will say. Seeming to imply that no one has the right to say that something is wrong. It's not up to you to judge. But maybe a more common response would be, don't judge me. How dare you? Don't judge me lest you be judged. Have you ever had anyone say that to you? Or maybe you said it yourself. 
Is Jesus prohibiting Christians from any kind of moral assessment? Or telling us not to make any kind of moral distinction? Absolutely not. We know that Jesus is not telling us to unconditionally affirm everything before us. As was mentioned last week in Loving Our Enemy, we need to see Luke chapter 6 in the context of the whole of Scripture. And you see, the Bible very much calls the Christian to make judgments. In Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, just a few verses following his exhortation on judging, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Well, how are they to do this? By their judgment. Jesus says, don't be naive and trust these false teachers based on their appearances at face value. They were to discern. They were to differentiate. They were to determine whether these prophets were true or false. And so Jesus called his disciples to make good and wise judgments on people. In this case, prophets. And it's the same way in which the church is called to judge preachers. Imagine the spiritual consequences if a person were to drive around a city, let's say Fremont, for example, and sit in the pew of every church he or she could find and to believe every word. The, the Bereans didn't do that, even when the Apostle Paul came to town. John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Or how about what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. That requires judgment. That requires distinguishing what is true and what is false. That requires spiritual discernment. Well, someone might say, well, that's about preachers, but not people. You can judge preachers, but you can't judge people. Well, listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That might be the more common situation in which Luke 6 is raised with people. You can't judge me. Who are you to tell me what I did was wrong? In this same context of church discipline, Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge, he says, the evil person from among you. Paul makes it very clear that the church is to judge the unrepentant member within the body. Now, all of this is only possible if its members are discerning of the spiritual condition of themselves and others. It requires making moral judgments. In fact, Jesus went on to rebuke the church in Thyatira in the book of Revelation for failing to judge and remove a woman in the church. The problem they had was that they lacked judgment. They chose not to differentiate between what was good and what was evil. They were over-tolerant. Again, all this to say, Jesus 
does not condemn the act of a person's judgment. I mean, we do it all the time, and it's critical that we do so in order to live discerningly and judiciously in this world. Well, then here's the follow-up. And the second question we need to ask. What does Jesus mean here when He says that we ought not to judge? Jesus is not primarily speaking of the external act of judgment, but rather the internal motive. Not so much the act of judging, but rather the very spirit of the judging. What Jesus forbids for us who belong to Him is not judgment, but judgmentalism. We have often found in the Sermon on the Mount is that yes, the Lord cares about what takes place on the outside, but more so He is concerned with what is taking place in the inside. Jesus is referring to a self-righteous arrogance. A self-righteous and proud spirit that believes oneself to always have the moral high ground compared to others. It is truly to have this holier-than-thou kind of attitude. And here's how this spirit is manifested. This person is always in the right, while others are always in the wrong. And this person makes sure that others know that they are in the wrong. It is not to be critical, but hypercritical. Dissecting every fault, searching for any blemish, but it's also the, the hypercritical person who comes to the wrong conclusion. This person comes to the wrong conclusion about others because they don't know all the facts. And so therefore they come to an unjust conclusion about other people. They assume. And they assume harshly. And they assume wrongly. Well, why? It's because this judgmental spirit puts oneself in the best light and others in the worst possible light. And so they see others with contempt. And so notice Jesus here in verse 37 follows His command, judge not with, condemn not. That's what a judgmental person does. In judging with this vicious spirit, he or she condemns. Never, never themselves. No, that could never be the case. It's because they themselves know what is right and true. And so what Jesus is warning us against is that attitude that is constantly trying to find fault with others, but never with himself. Well, who is Jesus describing? He's describing the Pharisee. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached about 30 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings at Westminster Chapel in London. And this was during the 1950s. And when he came, when he came to this passage, he, he said to his congregation, he said, I am not only describing the Pharisee. He said, I am describing all who have the spirit of the Pharisee. And you see, church, if we are honest with ourselves, to some measure, this spirit resides in you and in me. And the reason why that is the case is because we are proud. We exalt ourselves at the expense of casting down others. And a question that we really need to ask ourselves is this. Am I more sensitive to my own sin than the sin of other people? 
And oftentimes we are not. We view the sin of others as much more offensive, much more egregious than our own. That while we are sensitive to this person's sin or sensitive to that person's sin, we are desensitized when it comes to our own sin. This is a judgmental spirit. You know, I confess while preparing uh, this sermon and studying that I was not without this very spirit. And I found my heart as I studied to be so utterly wicked. And John Calvin was so right when he said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And you see, the idol that it keeps churning out is self itself. What Jesus is describing here is what we see in the Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray along with the tax collector, if you remember that story. And he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And he said, or even this tax collector. Notice that this Pharisee even condemned the man who was praying alongside of him at the temple. And you see, church, I wonder if we do the same. I wonder if we do the same to those who pray alongside of us, the brothers and sisters that worship with us each and every Sunday. We think ourselves better, better than them. We judge them with this hypercritical spirit. And as a result, we quietly in our hearts, quietly, we, we condemn them. This is the opposite of love, church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love hopes for all things. What we find out about this judgmental attitude is that it hopes for the worst in other people. Feeling this, this evil satisfaction when we find faults and blemishes in others and even disappointed if we don't find them. I began this sermon by asking, how can I be like Jesus? To have this judgmental spirit is to be nothing like Jesus. Rather, it is to be more like the devil. You know, the word devil in the New Testament is not really a name. It's not a name, but it's a description. Diablos means in the Greek to accuse, to slander. That's the word for devil. John in Revelation 12 describes the devil as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before our God. Isn't that what a judgmental spirit does? Always accusing? Always accusing. This is so contrary to the Lord Jesus who as our great high priest ever lives to make intercession for us. What is he doing before the Father? Praying for us. Pleading on our behalf while the devil is accusing us and condemning us. And this is why this attitude is so damning. It is to be nothing like Jesus, but rather live in imitation of the devil as an accuser. And Jesus, he takes issue with this. And he says this, verse 37, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. In other words, if you judge like this, you will be judged. If you condemn like this, you will be condemned. That should really cause us to examine our hearts and our motives. 
to find if such an ungodly trait be found within us, lest we be judged by the same standard. And he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, how can we be more like Jesus? Notice what he says next. Forgive. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Rather than a harsh, judgmental, and condemning spirit, the Lord says to have a forgiving spirit. And we are never more like our Heavenly Father and of His Son and never less like the devil than when we forgive other people. Instead of being quick to accuse, we ought to be quick to forgive. That if a brother or sister repents of their sin, seeks out forgiveness, we would be willing and ready to show grace. You see, to offer forgiveness is to prove that we ourselves have been forgiven. Because it shows that the grace of God is working in our hearts by His Spirit's power. Oh, beloved, we we need to be forgiving. I need to be forgiving and to not have this merciless heart. You know, and and sometimes that attitude, that attitude can be found within so-called doctrinally sound churches. That despite holding firm to the great doctrines of the faith, that despite touting a, a biblical doctrinal statement, the church is hollow of any mercy, any forgiving spirit, empty of any love. The doctrine means nothing apart from love. There are churches that possess a harsh and condemning spirit towards anyone who does not follow their man-made rules. That they look more like the tin man from the Wizard of Oz than Jesus. Strong metal armor on the outside. Heartless in the inside. This is not love. Not the love in which Jesus calls His church to. And if we have not love, says Paul, we gain nothing. Do you have this forgiving spirit? I've had to ask myself, do I have this forgiving spirit? Notice that a person can't pray the Lord's Prayer without it. It's because in the Lord's Prayer, we petition to the Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It was the Puritan Thomas Watson who said this. He said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. What a travesty for the person who is unable to forgive. To pray without the willingness to forgive would be to petition one's own death warrant. Jesus made it so clear in the verses that follow the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He couldn't have said it any more clear. Which is to say that there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't forgive. Those who are sons and daughters of the kingdom of God can and do forgive. Now this is not to say that they don't struggle with forgiving. 
or that they are free from the battles of bitterness and resentment. But Christians work at forgiving and ultimately they do forgive. It's because it lies at the very heart of the gospel. God, knowing the full extent of our sin in His grace, reached out to us in mercy, treating us not as our sins deserve, but granting forgiveness. You see, there is only one true judge, one final arbiter. Not you, not me, but God. And He sees all, and He knows all. And while we can only look at the outward appearance, God, He sees the heart. In which He finds every sort of evil in ours. It was a psalmist who cried, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And He said, but with you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, in His grace, God, He grants forgiveness. He grants forgiveness through the atoning work of His Son, Jesus Christ, in His dying on the cross for the penalty of sin, and by His rising from the grave to offer eternal life. And this forgiveness, this forgiveness is given to any who come to Him in trusting faith, Trusting in that saving work on his or her behalf. It is an act of love. Paul says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And if you're not a Christian here, non-Christian, the grace of God is that He is willing to remove your sins, to forgive you of all your sins if you come to Him in trusting faith. And for us Christians, the grace we give, the grace we give flows from the grace we have received and that we still need. For if there is no grace, meaning if we refuse to show this grace, then it could mean that there is no flow. And it's possible that there is no flow because there is an absence of a source. There is no fountain from which this grace flows. You see, it is a great contradiction that a Christian doesn't forgive. Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. What is true about a forgiving Christian is that he or she is generous as well. Now I think what Jesus is referring to here is not necessarily money, although we ought to be generous with our possessions. He just talked about it in reference to cloaks and tunics and goods. But here I believe Jesus is emphasizing being charitable, not in possessions, but in judgment. That we would be generous and benevolent and understanding in our judgment of other people. Not that we would overlook sin or that we would minimize sin. No, Paul says that love never rejoices in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. But that we would be generous in mercy. 
being more willing to give grace than to condemn. It means that we are striving to give people the benefit of the doubt. That's what that means. If a judgmental spirit is without mercy, then a giving spirit will be full of mercy. Listen to what Jesus said to us. Look at verse 36 prior. He said, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And Jesus here, notice, to show us the generosity of His Father, it gives to us an illustration to drive home His words. Look at verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Well, what is He saying here? It's a picture that comes from the ancient marketplace. Now you'll know that in the Old Testament, God gave laws to the people of Israel in regards to weights and measures to prevent cheating and stealing. That false weights and measures were an injustice to the Lord. And so if you went to the corn stand to buy a a bushel of corn, there was a way to stack those ears of corn in a way so so as to take up a lot of empty space. And what did the buyer obviously want to see? The seller shaking that bushel to create more space to pack more corn, right? And then to fill that bushel or that basket up to its max capacity. I used to frequent a certain restaurant in the past, which I don't anymore, but I must confess I went there today before church because I needed to eat lunch. But I usually don't go anymore. Today was a rare occasion. And sometimes I would watch to make sure I got the right amount of French fries for the size that I had ordered. Small fries is one scoop with the special metal scoop. A large fry is two scoops. But you always got to shake it. If you don't shake it, you don't, it doesn't really fill up the fry cup, you know? So I would watch to make sure, shake that thing, dude. Shake that thing. To see if the worker was generous with my fries. And sometimes they would be generous and the fries would be spilling over all into the bag. I'm like, yes, thank you. Something of this is taking place here. Pardon the illustration. Something of this is taking place here. And Jesus is saying, this is how the Father has measured His grace for you. It is spilling over. It is overflowing. It is in abundance. And Jesus now turns to us to ask, what will your giving look like? What will our giving look like? For those who have been shown an abundance of mercy, it would be inconceivable to withhold mercy to others. To do so would be hypocritical. Which leads to our third question. What does Jesus tell us about hypocrisy? Look at verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus speaks to us, and we know this illustration, about the contradiction of hypocrisy. And He gives the most vivid of an illustration uh, one that was so outrageous that it almost became comical. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some in that crowd that smiled or even chuckled. 
to think about a man trying to so furiously remove a speck of dust in the corner of a person's eye while he had a plank of wood in his own eye. Jesus' disciples really had to use their imagination as it was so ridiculous. But the point was crystal clear. That it, was, that it is utterly ridiculous for a man to be in search of sins and others while he is oblivious of his own. That's how ridiculous it is. In other words, he has become blind to his own sin. And church, though the illustration is so far-fetched, the fact is that we can be blind to our own sin. No? It can be true of us. And possibly it's true in some of us right now. And the hypocrisy of it all is that is when we see sin in others, but not in ourselves. And many times, you'll know this, when, when the hypocrite finds sin, they go into a flying rage. They go into an emotional outburst. And they're very adamant how much they are against this sin. Yet all the while, clueless in their own hearts. You'll remember King David who sinned seriously because of his immorality with Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her and arranged for the death of her husband. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to to tear the scales from his eyes. And like Jesus, Nathan, if you remember the story, he used a parable, although David at the time, he didn't know it, of a rich man with an abundance of sheep and cattle who took from the poor man his one lamb, the only lamb that he had to prepare food for a visitor. And it says in 2 Samuel 12 that David, he burned with anger. He was angry. And he said to Nathan, surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. What had happened to David? He was so utterly blind to his own sin while absolutely sensitive to the sin in another. And remember Nathan, he said back to David, you are that man. And you see, the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of hypocrisy, it was found, it was found in the best of us. The Lord's servant, David. And if we're truly, if we are truthful, it's found in us. We do the same thing, don't we? We find faults in others while being blind to our own. We, we are that man. Well, what's the remedy? The remedy, which is the fourth and last question. How can we prevent ourselves from possessing this judgmental, hypocritical spirit? How can we be more generous, more merciful, more forgiving? Notice Jesus provides for us another parable. A short story to simply to, to illustrate his message. Look at verse 39. He, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained 
will be like his teacher. Now, this seems like a very odd story to tell in the middle of a sermon. What does he mean about a blind man leading a blind man and falling into a ditch? He's talking about spiritual blindness. How can we be a forgiving people? How can we be generous in mercy? How can we be full of grace? Jesus says it all depends on who you're following. And a rebuke toward the Pharisees, whom Jesus called blind guides, if you remember. He told his disciples, you won't learn this from following them. But you'll learn it from following me. As the, as the disciples listened to Jesus here, who was their teacher? It was none other than Jesus, the Master Himself. You see, church, we will learn to be generous with mercy when we fix our eyes on the One who was that way with us. When we look to the cross at Calvary, there the Lord will melt our hearts and He will humble our pride and He will bring us low, will He not? And remind us of who we are and who He is and what He has done for us. And then so change our hearts that we would want to be like Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving Father, we thank You for this Word and for bringing us under its searching judgment to be examined through and through. And Your Spirit has revealed to us all manner of unrighteousness that resides in our hearts. And we confess our sins. Our sins. Not the sins of others, but our sins. We confess any spirit that is contrary to that which You require contrary to the grace given to us. And we have been shown unspeakable mercy. Forgive us for not showing even a little mercy for our judgmental and condescending hearts that think better of ourselves than we really are. Lord, help us to see with spiritual eyes, with clarity, and without hypocrisy. We ask, Holy Spirit, make us more like Jesus. Conform us closer into His image. It's in His holy and precious name we pray. Amen.